Hi folks, good to be with you all. Sunshine and Leith, good to be here. Almost. Okay, uh, we're working our way through the Psalms. Uh, if you're visiting with us, let me add my welcome to Sammy's. Uh, we're going to dig into the Bible in a minute or two. We're on a journey that we've called the series Thirst, and we've been looking at the book of Psalms, and we're going to continue that journey till till the beginning of December. And it's really getting into the heart behind someone who follows God and knows God. And uh, we, my prayer is that wherever you're at in your journey with God, that what we're sharing on today will help you, impact you, and help you to grow and prepare you for all that God has for you. So Father, we give this time to you. We pray as we turn to the Bible that you would literally speak to us, God. We pray you'd reveal yourself. We pray you'd encourage and strengthen and build up this wonderful campus here in Leith, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there was a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead, and they were lost. Uh, they, were, they were going on this big trek into the, the desert, and they all brought something with them, and the brunette said, yeah, I, I brought some water so that we don't get dehydrated. Uh, the redhead said, yeah, I, I brought some suntan lotion so that we don't get sunburn." And they turned to the blondes, and they, she said, uh, what, what have you brought? And she said, oh, I brought a car door. I said, why have you brought a car door? I said, well, if it gets really hot, you can wind the window down. <laughs> now, question, what would you take into a desert if you were going to survive in a desert? You know, what would be your equipment to survive the desert? And that's what this entire message is about, surviving a desert. David is in a desert, and that's where he writes this psalm. So turn with me to Psalm 63. The Bible says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I will seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and weary in a parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the washes of the night. Because you are my help, because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. What was David doing in a desert? What was David doing in a wilderness? I mean, this is the king. Well, it says in, it's interesting, it says in the introduction to the psalm, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, if you know the life of David, you know there was two moments when he was in a desert. There was the early part of his life, 
when he was just in his 20s, and he was in the run for his life from this guy called Saul. Now, you can, if you want to do some background reading to the Psalms, it's good to read First and Second Samuel, and uh, you'll get real good insight into the life of David and some of the things that are being described in these Psalms. So David was in the early stage of his life, was in the run for his life from Saul, but that's not the time he was in the desert when this psalm is written, because you notice in verse 11, it says he describes himself as the king. No, the first time he was in exile in a desert, it was before he became king. Now he's the king. He's about 61 years old. And you would think having done all that when he was younger, having been on the run for his life when he was younger, you'd think enough's enough. But now he's 61 and he's on the run for his life again in a desert. And he's writing, the de- writing from this desert. And let me, let me just tell you, I mean, that, that would be bad enough, but let me also give you a bit of insight into what was probably going through this guy's head. You see, 11 years before this moment, David made a ter- ter- terrifically bad mistake. He was 50 years old. And one night, he got up into the top of his... Uh, he couldn't sleep. He got up into the top of his palace, and he was up on top of the palace. He looked down, and there was this lady, Bathsheba, and she was bathing naked on top of a roof. And he, he, he lusted after her. He followed through with his lusts. He committed adultery. And this went on for several months. And he orchestrated, the, she found herself to be pregnant. And he orchestrated, using his power, abusing his power, he orchestrated the death of her husband, Uriah. So now David, who had been the good guy, has now become this adulterer and this murderer. And then after several months of him living in denial, Nathan the prophet comes to him and brings this challenge to him. And you can read about that in, in the book of Second Samuel. But he brings this challenge to him and David's feeling the challenge. He realizes he's, it's like he wakes up out of a stupid dream. He's been living in a total dwam. That's what deception does. It comes on you like a thick cloth and you can't see what you're doing. And David was living in utter deception. And then he had a wake-up call the Nathan prophet, Nathan, brought this wake-up call to him. David realized he was wrong. He repents for his sin. But then Nathan makes this comment. He says in 2 Samuel twelve ten, he said about God speaking to you, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. The sword will never depart from your house. See, here he is, 11 years later. He's in a wilderness again. And you know what's going around his head? The sword will never depart from my house. It's not just in a wilderness because a, a bad guy, his own son, Absalom, has risen up against him. It's not just that would be bad enough. But he kind of feels he's living in consequence. He kind of feels this isn't just, he's not just a victim. He kind of feels that what's happening to him now is a consequence for his past sin, a consequence for how he had been living and abused his power as a king, how he had misused his, you know, how he hadn't been a good husband and he hadn't been a good father. And this was consequence for his own sin. So I don't know about you, but you ever find yourself in a desert? Not because you're a victim, but because of the consequence of your own sin. I'm not talking about a literal desert. I'm talking about a situation in life where you find yourself going through something And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I deserve this. Nevertheless, three things David did that caused him to survive the desert. Three things you can do to cause you to survive 
your desert. Number one, keep thirsting. David says in verse one, I'm just going to work our way through the verses in order. Verse one, you God are my God. I earnestly seek you. You God are my God. My God. A personal description. Speaks of intimacy. It's just like I would say to my son, Michael, you're my son. And he would say, you're my dad. I can say it to anyone else. You know, in Buddhism, you wouldn't say to karma, you're my force. Like it's something personal. Even in Islam, you wouldn't say, my Allah. But the Bible encourages us, because of the relationship we can have with God, to call him, my God. There's an intimacy. In fact, it's the other way as well. It's not just us towards God. It's also God towards us. When God's throughout the Bible, if you look in the Old Testament, you constantly find God making statement along the lines of, uh, that they shall be my people and I shall be their God. You ever seen that phrase reoccurring in the Old Testament? Whenever God uses that phrase, they shall be my people and I shall be their God, that's God's way of saying covenant. It's his way of saying this unbreakable agreement between me and my people. Covenant is an incredible term, covenant. You know, we understand agreements. We understand contracts. But covenant is an unbreakable, only breakable by death agreement. And of all the types of agreement, that's the one that God chose to show how he wants to interact with you and I. He says, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. He is committing himself to us and us to him. It shows obligation. It shows that God is obligating himself to us and us to him. So see, when David starts the psalm by saying, you, God, are my God, He's speaking the language of covenant. He's speaking the language of intimacy. He's speaking the language of, God, right now I'm in the worst place in my life, but I'm committed to you, and I know you, no matter what happens, are committed to me. That's covenant. I spent a bit of time this week with a guy who was dying. One of our church members goes to the Gorgi campus. His dad's in the last few days of his life, and he's been sent home to die. So I... I said, could I visit him? So he lives in Motherwell. So I got in the car, went through to visit him and I spent some time with him. And I guess the big thing on my friend across on the other campus's mind is, does my dad know God? Because, you know, there's something about that kind of Victorian era where parents don't really talk much about that kind of stuff. You know, they don't really open up about, you know, I love God, son. You know, I, I do with my kids. I remember my dad was a little bit like that with me. Maybe some of your dads were. And this is, so my friend never really knew where his dad was at. So when I sat down with this dear man, beside his, beside, he was lying on the sofa, hardly able to breathe. And I said, do you mind if we talk about God? And he said, I'd like that. And I said, you're at the end of your life now. And are you saved? Are you trusting God? And he and he. He said to me that when he was 16, there was a moment came when he, was at a, he went to this event and a speaker spoke and he, something hit his heart. And he said, that night I made God my Lord and my Savior. And I got baptized. And he, started, and he said, you know what? And it's never left. He's never left. So do you know what? This guy's about to enter into eternity. He may have already done that already. 
but there's something so powerful about him being your God. Not just a God. Not just vaguely believing in God. But is he your God? Are you in covenant with God? Not just, do you believe in God or I was christened as a baby? You will go to hell if all you were is christened as a baby. You need to know God's. You need to know him as your God's. You need to be in covenant with God, unbreakable covenant with God. There's no hope otherwise. He's my God. David goes into this wilderness saying, you're my God. And then he says, later on in verse 1, he says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. So what David's doing here is he's, he's using the analogy of his situation. He's in a desert, and he's talking about how physically in a desert, you come to a place of physical thirst. Your body needs water to survive. But he's actually talking deeper. He's talking about your soul here. And he's saying, just as your body needs water to survive, I need you. My soul needs God to survive. That's what he's saying. And he's acknowledging this. And he's longing for, for God. You know, it's interesting when, when, I, when the kids, my kids were younger, they're now 10 and 12. But when they were younger, I used to walk in school every morning. And at the school gate, you get into lots of different conversations with different parents. And on two occasions, two separate conversations I had, which was really insightful. Uh, but one was an agnostic family, one was an atheist family. And the mum in the atheist family came to me one day and said, my daughter's asking me all these questions about the meaning of life and God. I don't know where she's got them from. And then another mum from an agnostic family, uh, this is about two years after that, said, uh, and this, bo- both of their daughters were in my little girl's class, that's, that's why we knew each other, and this family, who was an overtly atheist family, and she said, uh, sorry, this is the agnostic family, said, my daughter's asking tons of questions about God, do you have a Bible that I could give her? Because I don't know how to answer her. So I brought a Bible to school and gave it, but what's going on there? Because they're not going to church. And they're not getting indoctrinated by parents. And they're not getting told stuff at school because it's pretty secular. And yet, nevertheless, before they're told they can't look into that and can't believe that, and before they're influenced and, and permeated by the secular society that we're living in, what's in there? There is a natural heartbeat that just like your body longs for water, so also human beings' souls need God. And that should be, incidentally, not just how you survive, but how you thrive in life. Not just how you don't get kind of tick over through the needy times, but how you thrive in the great times. It's when that connection's there. And notice he says, earnestly I seek you. And then he goes on to say, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. He says, earnestly I seek you. See, earnestly I seek you. You can, you can understand that. Because he's in a bad place. Earnestly I seek you. That means... I need you. Have we all been there, right? I need God right now. But see when he says, I thirst for you and I long for you, he's not just saying I need you. He's saying, I want you. And there's a big difference. A lot of people turn to God in the desert and they say, I need you. But do you really want him? I know you need him. But do you really want him? So let me put it another way. If you could get all the stuff from God, like heaven and help on earth, without going to God, if you could get all that stuff anyway, by by removing God from the equation, would would you rather that option? Honestly? Really? Be honest. Not in front of everyone. Just... Just quietly in your, in your heart. Would you, would you like to get all the benefits of God without having to go through the God thing, without the commitment thing? 
without the obligation bit. It's interesting, in, in the New Age religions, there is no requirement on, on you for obedience. No, that's what, people like spirituality without any obedience or any allegiance or any accountability. Absolutely. It's called being fallen human beings. But he's, David doesn't just say, I need you. He says, I want you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And what you notice here is this, that one of the hallmarks of knowing God is the fact that you thirst for God. That's ironic, isn't it? Look at the journey of the psalm. He starts off saying by, by saying, my God, you are my God. And then he goes on to say, I thirst for you. I long for you. Surely you'd think it'd be the other way around. He says, I thirst for you. I long for you so that you can become my God. But he didn't. He said, you are my gods. And he says, I thirst for you. I long for you. And the point is this, that someone who knows gods thirsts for more of gods. If you have an appetite for gods, that is a sign that you are gods. If you have no appetite for gods, that is a sign that you're not gods. It's like if you've tasted my sister-in-law's banoffee pie. If you've tasted my sister-in-law's banoffee pie, you will want more. Oh, you'd want more. And if you say, I don't want banoffee pie, I would say, you obviously haven't tasted my sister-in-law's. Because if you've tasted my sister-in-law's banoffee pie, you will want more. It's like if you've tasted God's, you're going to want more of God's. It's not like you might, you will. If, and if you don't want more of God, you haven't tasted God in the first place. You maybe had a religious thing going on. Maybe you said a little prayer in the sermon, but you haven't really got him. Because one of the signs that you've got him is that you're thirsting after him. So, number one, keep thirsting. Number two, the second survival technique that David found, how he got through his wilderness. And by the way, these things I'm sharing with you, these aren't theoretical. This is how I survive. And I really mean that. This is how I survive and keep my head above water on a daily, weekly, and yearly basis. All these things I'm sharing, every single one of them, this is where I'm at. This is what causes me to survive. Number two, keep focused. Verse two and three. I've seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. It's a pretty dramatic statement. <clears throat> because your love is better than life. Now, you can understand poets like making things sound dramatic. But just to give Den David the benefit of the doubt here, he's not just trying to sound dramatic. He literally could die. He's in a wilderness. He's been hunted by his son, who's causing a mutiny and he's trying to steal the throne. Yeah. So he actually could die. So this is not like a dramatic thing he's saying. It's a possibility. And here's the question. What is so important to you that if you lost it, your life would be meaningless? What's the one thing if you lost it, life would be worth nothing. Is it relationships? So if, if it's a relationship, because if it's on a human level, it's in a relationship, and then that person goes, then your life is meaningless. Or if it's a job, 
or your financial security. And you were to lose that. Imagine you're in a job currently now and you, and you think, if I lost this, my life's over. You've, you've identified your God. Yes, it's heartbreaking. But you know, suicide rate is up. Since in one year, 2009, suicide rate was up 5,000 people across America and the UK because of the recession. Directly related research has shown because of the recession. People who are so impacted, and I have compassion for them, but they're so impacted by the negative results on their finances. Your reputation. Say your reputation all of a sudden overnight became nothing. Would it render your life meaningless? Well, for David, the most important thing to him was God. And he could survive anything if he had God's love. God was gone, he'd be nothing. David was literally facing the loss of everything in this wilderness. His, he had to leave Jerusalem. That was his, that was his kingdom. That was his palace. He, you know, everything was in Jerusalem. He'd lost everything. Potentially, he didn't know if he was going to get it back or not. And he's saying, do you know what? As long as I've got God's love, I'll be okay. Easy to read these verses, right? But imagine you're in that situation. Honestly, imagine you were in that situation. You've got to get to the point, folks. We've got to get to the point where we keep our focus that actually God's love, I mean, that, I, I'm sustained by that. You know, what does it mean because your love is better than life? What does that mean? I think it means it's also better than everything that life can offer. Because if you lose your life, you lose everything that life could offer. So you could have said, I prefer the love of God to friendship, to sexual relations, to foods, to job satisfaction, to productivity, to books, to skateboards, to hobbies, to football, to homes, to sunsets, to autumn leaves. I'd rather have the love of God. It's not just life in general, but it's everything that life has to offer. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, God designs the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits are designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it's not there. There is no such thing. The point is this. Like, oh God, just give me happiness. I don't, I don't need you, God. Just give me happiness. You don't understand. You were designed to be connected with God. And there is no such thing as happiness outside of God. And David's figured that. And he knows I can handle anything in life as long as I've got God. I can suffer the loss of anything as long as I've got his love. And what David is saying, when he says, because your love is better than life, he is saying this. He's saying that God is an end in himself. He's not a means to an end. That's what he's saying. Because your love is better than life. If people are thinking, do you know what? I just need an experience of God's love. Then I can have the life I'd really want. What you're not realizing is actually you've made God a means to another end. Or, oh, if I could just have that experience of God so that then I'll know I'll go to heaven. No, God's a means to an end. 
And the weird thing is, you don't really get God if you've always approached him as a means to the end. You never really get him because he's not a means to an end. He is the end in himself. He is everything. Heaven wouldn't be heaven without him. Life wouldn't be life without him. It's just like in a marriage. If, you know, it's in a marriage, if it's all about her meeting my needs. So as long as I get sex, as long as she cooks me meals, as long as she makes me feel good about myself, then I'm going to stick with her. But what about when that runs dry? What about in tough times? What about after the birth of a kid when there's no sex? What about if she has a real low time for a year and she can't just cope with things? How about that? How about, are you going to still commit to her then? Because it's called unconditional. It's not like, okay, God, I'll follow you as long as you bless me, as long as you heal me and prosper me. Do you know what? I really believe that God heals and prospers. Absolutely. The Bible says it. But am I going to follow him whether he does or not? You bet. You bet. Because it's not about bartering with God on our terms. It's about God being God, and I'm going to follow him anyway. And see, when it says, your love is better than life, when David said that of God, do you know the strange thing as I was thinking about that? Actually, I think God says that to us. Because if you look, is this not God's heart for us? Is it not that God, in a, in a radical love, wanting relationship with us, was willing to give his life? That's amazing. Blows me away. Jesus, at the end of his life, said this. John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, than who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ laid down his life on a cross. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. 2,000 years ago, God, in desiring a relationship with you and I, in desiring a covenant, so you could call him my God, and we could be his people, he made an everlasting covenant by dying on a cross and shedding his own blood, a covenant sealed in divine blood. Why? Because your love to him is better than life. That's amazing. That was his focus. And what you understand, Jesus talks about the eternal life you can get as a result of this. And he says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Your love is better than life. In other words, you know, for some people, eternal life is achieved by knowing God. But for Jesus, eternal life is knowing God. Do you know that death changes nothing? Death changes nothing. It just petrifies the existing state in your soul for eternity. It doesn't change anything. See, if you've been dead before you died, if you've been dead to God, not interested in God before you died, when you die, all that death does is it petrifies that state for eternity. But if you've been alive in a relationship with God, loving God, and you die, you're in for eternity. That's how it goes. Then he says in verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And, you know, he says, I will praise you as long as I live. And you know what? He has. 
David's writing at roughly 61 years old. He dies roughly age 70, which is pretty old for that time, for that, for that era in history. It, he has, you know. I will praise you as long as I live. He's, he's, been, he's lived his life. He's an elderly gentleman now, and he's still praising God. And the point is this. He's just been in for the long haul. He's praising God ever since he was a teen as a shepherd boy looking after those sheep. And I, this is the encouragement of this, no matter what you go through, just praise him. No matter what you go through in life, just be a worshiper, right? No matter what seasons come and go, just keep worshiping. Just live those seasons. Get through those seasons. Decades come and go. People come and go. Situations happen. God's the same. God's eternal. God's more glorious than ever. And he's worthy of praise. And you just got to live that way. And he says in verse 5, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Pinch yourself a minute and think, whoa, this guy's in a desert and the run for his life. It looks like he's 61 years old. He's lived a full life. And now his kingdom's been threatened from his own son. He's, he's got this thing in his head, probably to do with his own consequence for his own actions. He's, and he, yet he's saying, I'll be satisfied as with the riches of foods. You know, he's, that is not the sort of thing you say in those situations. It's the worst time of life. Uh, there was a missionary called Alan Gardner, and in the 1930s, sorry, 1830s, uh, he started many churches in the, among the Zulus in Africa. And then in the 1840s, he started many churches among the Indians of Chile. And then in the 1850s, he and a few others had, had their eyes set on starting churches and starting a missionary movement in South America. And in 1851, they, on their way to South America, their ship that they were on was uh, sunk and they were shipwrecked and they were washed ashore in this remote island, three of them. They decided they would do everything they could to stay alive. And they, <clears throat> they were trying to survive. They were trying to make the best of a bad situation in the hope that they could hang on until someone came to rescue them. No one came. And they all died. A few years later, they found his body, this guy Alan Gardner, sitting beside a, propped up in a, against a, a tree with his journal beside his body. How would you have responded? You spent decades planting churches around the world. You're off to South America to start a whole new movement of stuff. You end up shipwrecked and you die. It's not like even you get rescued. This is not like one of those great stories. I've usually got some good stories. This is a rubbish story. How would you feel? Uh, when they finally discovered his body, they found the journal. And in the journal, on the last page of his journal, the last thing he had written was this. It was Psalm 34, verse 10. And he said, Young lions do suffer, do, sorry, do lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And he concluded by writing, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Is that what you would have written? I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, I believe in a God who delivers people from islands. I believe in a God who rescues people from death. I believe in a God who heals diseases. But you know what? I'm overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness no matter what happens. And that's a great place to be at. It'd be a great place to be at that even if you are starving to death, which is a horrible death to die, away from your loved ones and familiar surroundings, you're able to say, I'm overwhelmed with the goodness of God. <laughs> wow, win-win. Verse 6 says, On my bed I remember you. 
I think of you through the watches of the night. You know when you're going through those hard times and the sleep goes and you're lying there? <clears throat> Eleven years before that, he woke up and his mind went on to the wrong things and he ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba. But here he is 11 years later. He's in the run for his life and he's going to use, see those wake-up moments? Make the most of them. Don't count sheep. That's just a waste of time. It's a stupid thing to do. Think on God. Use, make the most of that time. No one else is awake. It's really, instead of getting all frustrated, make the most of your awake moments in the middle of the night just to think on God and to praise him. That's a great use of time. So number one, keep thirsting. Number two, keep focus. And then here's the last thing he does. He keeps singing. Uh, okay, let me just, there's a couple of verses through the psalm up till now that have mentioned this. Verse three says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Verse five says, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Now we come to verse seven, because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. Um, I think it was Calvin said, praise is the highest form of prayer. And I th- I, I like that because here's why I like it. Because when you're praying, typically you're asking for things for you. You're asking for things or you're asking for things for the city. But when you're praising, you're asking for God. You're seeking God. You're longing for him. I think it's the highest form of prayer. So unconditional. Praise. And it says he's singing because God is my help. But how many people know he hasn't seen God come through as his help yet? Now, we know how it goes. If you read in First and Second Samuel, you understand that David recovers. He survives the wilderness. He makes it back. He becomes the king again. But he's in the middle of it just now. That's not in the bag. And yet he's saying, I'm praising you because you're my help. You ever had to praise God even when it doesn't look like the answer's come? Right? A few of you have had that. Okay, you're going through, you're right in the middle of it. It's probably the hardest. It's easy to praise after it all comes through. Hey, I always knew it was going to happen. Praise the Lord. You're right in the middle of it, right? And everything, and your emotions are all over the place, and your circumstances are shouting at you, and people are telling you, well, God's going to let you down again. And, you know, and you're still praising. That's the time to praise. And he's singing in faith. I love Abraham. When God promised him that he was going to have a kid, 25 years he waited for that kid to be born. That's a long pregnancy. <laughs> she was huge. <laughs> anyway, I've just I made that a bit up. But in Romans 4, it says about Abraham, how did, how, did he, how did he persist? How did he persist during that phenomenally long waiting period? It says, verse 20, sorry, yeah, Romans 4, verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving God glory or giving glory to God. So how do you grow strong in faith? You give glory to God. This is before Isaac was born. He was able to say, praise you, God. Just, just simply for the promise, because the promise is as rock solid as its fulfillment. For you're as rock solid and your words are as rock solid as the reality that will manifest. So you can praise God before you see the situation turn. And David was doing this. Verses 8 to 11, he says, he ends the psalm by saying this, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword 
and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And all who swear in God will glory in him, while the mouth of liars will be silenced. So in these last three verses, you know what he's doing? He's saying, I'm going to make it through this. He's saying that the enemies will be destroyed. He's saying that the king will rejoice in God. He's, you know, God, you're going to do this. You're going to change this. You're going to fix this situation. That was his confidence in the middle of this time. He believed God was going to turn it around. He's been right, real honest right through the psalm. You know, he said, your love is better than life. In other words, do you know what? Even if at this moment I lose my life, your love is all I need. If I lose everything, as long as I've got you. He's saying that through the psalm. And here at the end, but the end, he's saying, but you know what? I think God's going to bring me through. I think God's going to nail this. I think God's going to deal with this situation. That's what he's saying. He's got confidence in God. Reminds me of those guys in Daniel. My shack, your shack, and a bungalow. Sorry. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, verse 16. And the situation is that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up a golden image, and he said, you will bow down and worship this golden image, and if you don't, I'll throw you in a fiery furnace. You know, at least our worship team don't do that to you. You know what I'm saying? Fiery furnace. Sing. So Nebuchadnezzar was threatening them, saying, bow down and worship this false god, or I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying, we're not going to do that. And they refused to, and they were reported to the king as rebels. And then the king threatened them again, and this is what they said to him in Daniel three sixteen to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the burning, the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. I love those verses. I love those verses because it speaks of the same unconditional faith that I see here in David's life. Unconditional, no strings attached. What, where were they at? Here's where they were at. They believed. If they were to place bets, they would say, God will deliver us. You saw that in the, you saw that in the verse. It said, God will deliver us. He's able to, and he will deliver us. And you know how it went. Nebuchadnezzar went ballistic. He threw them into the blazing, fiery furnace. And then he saw a fourth person in the fiery furnace with them. They didn't die. They weren't consumed. In fact, there wasn't even a smell of smoke on their garments. And God delivered them. And I don't know, it might have been Jesus in there with them. But an amazing deliverance happens. And we have that, we're left with this great legacy. But what you see, there was great faith before that great legacy. And they were in this place where they were saying, God will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But then they also said, and by the way, even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. And I like that. You've got to have a robustness to your faith. That your faith isn't based on, okay, God, I'll do this if you do that. I'll worship you if you do this. Do things my way, God, and then I'll be your follower. He's God. So you follow him, and you worship him, and you say, your love is better than life. You're the most important thing to me. Be everything. Be center in my heart. 
No strings attached, God. I believe you'll deliver me from this. I believe you'll change the situation. But you know what, God? Do you know what? Just to be really clear, I want you to know that even if you didn't, I'm still yours with just as much passion as if you, if you were to do that. If we're to die in that blazing furnace, then no problem, because at least we die worshiping the true gods. And I think miracles are drawn to people like that because they're true believers. It's not believers with a consumer mentality. They're unconditional in their faith. So David comes through this wilderness. He's restored as king back in Jerusalem. And we're left with this amazing psalm. A psalm that was written among probably one of the toughest times in his life when he was thinking, this is not just an enemy against me. This is also due to my own doing because of my stupidity 11 years ago when I committed adultery and when I murdered a man. But God is gracious and he delivers people. Let's pray.